Welcome to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com, the go-to provider for all your Tar Heel gear. I'm your host, Tommy Ashley. I'm joined by Buck Sanders, Greg Barnes. You're listening to the Inside Carolina podcast, sponsored by JohnnyTShirt.com. Buck, I know you were in Chapel Hill, and I know you had an opportunity to observe practice. Only the second media availability for practice this season under Coach Mike Brown, but your first opportunity to get a, a real live view of the Tar Heels, your overall observations before we dig down into the weeds and talk about positions and players and facilities and all that good stuff. Well, if you remove all that from it, there's nothing left to talk about, Tommy. Was it a nice day? <laughs> it was a pretty day. Yes, it was. <laughs> a little warm. Uh, the drive was terrible both ways, but, uh, you know, it, it was, uh, it was a very interesting day. I thought, um, very different, uh, having practice, uh, in the new facility, uh, Greg's written about it. Other people have talked about it. Uh, the, uh, there was a thunder lightning scene in the area about 30 minutes in and, they just made an announcement, moved everybody inside. And the next thing you know, they're practicing again without missing a beat really. Um, so I think that's, that was very, very cool. They didn't have to suspend practice. I think Charlie Heck may have said that they have suspended practice. Like, um, since the indoor facility was underway, uh, 10 times. And this is, I guess, suppose when they were, uh, practicing in Keenan while, while the indoor stadium was being built. So yeah, that was very different. Um, the two fields, uh, open outside the indoor arena, um, that's different. They weren't there really in the spring at all. Um, so that was a different part to it and they could, you could actually, you know, stand in between, uh, the indoor arena and, and watch some of practice and, and turn, uh, 90 degrees and watch, um, the other field and, and practice being taken place there. So yeah, uh, the practice was, um, interesting from a lot of different levels. Uh, got to see a lot of, uh, the quarterbacks throw the football for what I understand the first day, uh, they didn't do a lot of that. Um, they were, they were in, uh, shorts that day. And then the other thing is it was the first day they were in pads. So this first, first look at this team, um, fully suited up. So yeah, a lot of interesting stuff going on. Um, the, the whole atmosphere is just different from any fall camp I've been involved in since I've been covering UNC football. Yeah, and one thing I wanted to add uh, is when we had the facility tour last week with with Mac and and Rick Steinbacher, I found an enlightening. We we kind of knew this, but it's the first time we've really heard it officially. But both Mac and Rick said that uh, the field last year at Keenan Stadium uh, had gotten to be really really poor. It was in pretty bad shape, and if you you remember back 2017. That's when the, the game on grass crew out of Charlotte 
would come up. And I don't, they didn't do it before every game, but they did it several times where they would come in and just completely rip out all the turf and put in new new sod. And it held up that first year. Uh, but then last year, you know, something about you know, maybe the, the root structure not, not taking shape the way they needed to, it kind of got bad pretty quickly. And when I'd asked Mac about you know the the program's uh, look into the injuries because you know he wanted to do that during spring practice because some of you guys were out even in spring practice, uh, he said, "Yeah, we're going we're going to take a look at this." He he highlighted the fact that hey, well, depth was certainly an issue that played a part of it, but also you know the the field was just in such bad shape, but that didn't help. Um, and so now when you're talking about the state-of-the-art facility with, with two of the fields being that, that you know, kind of uh, high-tech, you know, brand-new version of syn- synthetic turf that's got, you know, kind of a, a new root system. Uh, me and Buck were talking about it the other day. There's concrete, you know, below it, but they've got, like, it's called a root zone system. Uh, and so when you step on that field, I mean, it's, it's almost kind of cushy. It's nice. You have two of those fields, and you have a, a true uh, grass turf field. The fact that they you have such good facilities, they can run around, not worry about slippage, not worry about having to take care of the, the fields the way they had in you know, the last two years. I, I think that inspires confidence. I, I think that makes it a lot easier for the strength and conditioning staff. And then, like Buck said, when when you talk about the injury aspect. Uh, or the the lightning and thunder aspect of it. Sorry, that that is a, a critical component of this because, as Charlie Heck had said, you know, during the mock game for the Cal game last year, uh, they go out there, start practicing. Storm comes in, and they have to go into the locker room for about an hour because they have nowhere else to go. And so now, uh, you know, as Buck said, you know, it's, it's a three minute three minute transition. Hey, you know what? We have lightning in the area. Uh, let's move inside. And within three minutes, they're they're back at it. So, uh, I, th- I think that the facility is is fantastic. And uh, you hate you hate it for Larry Fedora uh, that he wasn't able to appreciate it. Um, but you know, it's one of those things. Mac Mac wasn't able to fully appreciate the Keenan Football Center uh, back you know twenty one years ago. So it's funny how how those things work out. Indeed, when you're talking about that, it, I was thinking the exact same thing you closed with there. Um, you know, I look at these facilities and, Buck, maybe it's just me looking at the way other schools are, but it just seems inconceivable. And I know it is what it is at this point, but it seems inconceivable a place like Carolina didn't have these facilities in place a long time ago, or at least, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But now they do have them. Um, the impact, and but your opinion on this, because this is funny to me to hear Charlie Heck talk about. They had to just stop practice and go inside and just chill out. I mean that that is to me it's almost comical the state of Carolina's football program to to be in that situation. Is that too harsh, Buck, or is that just yeah, whatever. Well, you know, I, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I guess you could look at it a number of different ways, but you have to remember that uh, when UNC built uh, the Keenan Football Center, 
and the weight room underneath it. And there, there's four levels of, uh, um, with five levels of structure, um, in the Keenan football center, including the, uh, uh, the first and second and third floors, which are, you know, like weight room player lounge. And then you've got meeting rooms and then you've got the coaches offices and then you've got the recruiting area above it. When they first built that, it was pretty state of the art. I mean, uh, how long ago were we talking about like 98, 20 years ago? You know, about 20 years ago, uh, the, the Keenan football center with everything in one building finally, uh, and, and it was, you know, the locker rooms, the weight room and, and everything related to it. That was considered pretty cutting edge. And yeah. And Buck, I'll add this while you're saying that Bubba Cunningham was at Notre Dame during that time. And he has talked about when North Carolina was building that facility, how the Notre Dame crew came to Chapel Hill, saw it, and had the same impression you did that, hey, this is a state-of-the-art facility. Uh, you know, we need to take some ideas from this. And and then they built an, an indoor facility over there uh, on the other side of the law school, which they did use for football now and then. It wasn't as convenient to use, and it wasn't uh, football-specific. Other uh, sports entities used it, track and field and whatnot. Uh, but uh, you know that was built probably 10 years ago. I don't know the exact um, date that was completed, but it, it that was built, uh, obviously, since the Keenan Football Center. Uh, so... North Carolina may not have been, uh, you know, the, in terms of the, you know, facilities arm race, you know, leading the pack all these years, but they've, they've not been that far behind. And the, the new indoor facility, you know, right now, uh, it's considered one of the best indoor facilities there is in, in the nation, but, you know, a couple of years from now, two, three years from now, somebody will come along, maybe in the ACC, maybe several schools in the ACC, and, you know, they're going to do the same thing because in a lot of ways it is an arms race. Uh, you know, when they have recruits in and they want to show them around, they don't want to show them a facility that's obviously dated. So uh, I, I don't know that North Carolina – has a lot to feel bad about uh, in terms of uh, where they are or have been with facilities. Although 20 years, I mean, of course, for someone like me, who, you know, that doesn't seem like a lot of long time. For these recruits, they weren't born 20 years ago. So, um, you know, I guess it depends on your perspective, but I don't know that North Carolina has a lot to complain about in terms of, um, you know, the the way they have handled the facilities part of uh, the football program. I don't know if I totally 100% agree with that, but certainly now I will say certainly now they are on par with just about everybody, and, and I know there's some more in, in the works as far as expanding the locker rooms, expanding the Kenyon Football Center, um, 
down the road a year or two from now. But let me talk about johnnytshirt.com for a second um, before we get into the nuts and bolts of this Carolina football preseason. Johnny T-Shirt, certainly a great sponsor of this podcast. Buck and Greg and myself have frequented Johnny T-Shirt over the years of plenty on Franklin Street or whether it's online. It's a great place for you to get your Carolina gear. Your Mac is back. T-shirts are still available. And any Carolina gear you could possibly want, you can get at Johnny T-Shirt and johnnytshirt.com. And an added bonus, if you're a subscriber to the Inside Carolina web uh, message boards, premium message boards website, you get 10% off your order, whether it's there in the store, whether it's online. You just tell them, hey, I'm an Inside Carolina subscriber, enter the code or give them the code and you'll get that 10%, save some money. Uh, the one thing I'm not sure they have is the new cleats that I've seen pictures of, the new Jordan 1 cleats. Um, if they sold those, I'm sure they'd sell out in a heartbeat. But any other thing, Carolina football, sports, basketball, anything you can imagine Carolina-related is certainly there at Johnny T-Shirt and JohnnyT-Shirt.com. Great folks, great sponsors of this podcast. Greg, I'm, I'm going to come to you first talking about practice itself, and, and we're going to discuss it briefly because I don't know if it's really a relevant topic yet. Um, but, of course, everybody wants to talk about the quarterback situation at Carolina. And I can say this, um, a lot of people say if you have two, you have none. If you have three, you have none. Uh, Carolina football recently knows what it's like to have none. And that's not a knock on past players. It is what it is. The, for the, the facts speak for themselves. But Carolina has three able-bodied quarterbacks at the position now, Greg. Your thoughts just initially. I know the article is no separation. Um, do you expect to see separation at some point? When will that separation start to occur? I know there's some scrimmages coming up. And what do you think the coaches are looking for um, and maybe how they will define, quote, separation? Yeah, I think you're right. That scrimmages is going to really tell us everything we need to know. But uh, I do think the North Carolina fan base has a unique angle with this just because of everything that's happened over the last five years, right? I mean, if you go back to 2015, we're talking about a team that's got Marquise Williams and Mitch Trubisky. And so you're like, okay, well, which team can lead North Carolina you know, to the most wins? Because both of these guys are like elite quarterbacks. One, of course, would go on to be the number two draft pick in the NFL, and the other led North Carolina to, to one of his best seasons in school history. And then you fast forward just a couple years, and we're talking about you, know, Brandon Harris and Chas Surratt and Nathan Elliott, uh, and kind of the struggles that that all that included. And so now you're in this situation where you've had the highs of, of Mitch and Marquise, you've had the lows of the last two years, and so now you've got you three freshmen who are all talented, who all can move, who all have pretty good arms, uh, and so. I think you're almost willing to kind of t have a, a wait and see approach because while we are, you know, five days into practice, at least in terms of the number of, of practices that they've had, there, there's no immediate rush. And so I think it's one of those things where, yes, you would like to have a quarterback separate from the other two, if possible, sometime soon. I mean, you don't want to get into game week, for example, not knowing who your guy's going to be. So I think the coaching staff will make a decision by that point in time. 
Uh, Mac has said that, you know, if you date back to his time in, in North Carolina the first time around, he played two quarterbacks a lot. At Texas, that approach didn't work, so he really only had one quarterback that he used. And so he's willing to you know, rotate quarterbacks if he needs to. Uh, but the thing that he said a couple times that I think has been overlooked is he's been pretty adamant. Look, we've got to have at least two guys ready to go. Um, you know, maybe not all three because injuries happen or some guy gets upset and you know, those types of things happen. But as long as you have two guys ready you can count on, you're good. And so I, th- I think as, as fans kind of follow this race, they do need to understand that we're going to learn a lot more about where things stand after the second scrimmage. That's what Mac told us earlier this week. Uh, because they want to see, okay, who can who can move the team? Who can score? Because that's what matters. I mean, if all these guys are pretty similar, and by all accounts they are, you know, one may have a better day this day, and one may have a better day that day, but they're pretty close. And so what it's going to come down to is efficiency. Who can score the most points? It's not a matter of getting into the red zone, right? It's a matter of putting the ball in the end zone. And I, I think that's what is going to be going to, going to be the determining factor. Uh, and you know, we can get into, well, you know, does it matter if it's Sam Howe because he's a true freshman and he's, he's max recruit. He's from Charlotte. He's the in-state guy that's important in recruiting. Or, you know, Kay was the guy that actually kind of had, had won the job in front of Jace last year before he got hurt. But Jace looked pretty good too in the, the series he had against Georgia Tech. So we can debate all those things. But but at the end of the day, I think any of them can be effective. And I think it's going to be who can be who can be the cleanest, who can take care of the ball, who can move the offense, who can score points. That's going to be the determining factor. And, and like I said, it may be two guys that stand out. And there may be two guys that we see against South Carolina because the thing that changes everything is that new rule from last year where guys can play four games. So you can play all three guys a bunch in those first four games and say, look, guys, this is the competition. Who plays the best gets to uh, keep playing. And the other guy's going to sit on the bench and he's going he's to sit out this year you know, if, if that's how. Uh, and so all those things are yet to come. But, but I do think we, we're going to be another week or two out before we start to get some, some really good understanding of where things stand. Uh, one thing that's interesting when you're talking about the QB race, um, and, and it's a guy who's probably, I don't know if he was people's favorite quarterback at Carolina, but he was certainly one of those ones that if you based everything he did at practice and everything he did in preseason, he'd have never played. And that was Darian Durant. I don't see that being an issue with these three, but it is an, an interesting dynamic uh, to think about when you think about quarterback competitions, don't you think? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And, uh, you know, to this day, and I've probably talked about it before on this podcast, um, you know, I was at that game uh, at Oklahoma in 2001 when uh, Ron Curry was just getting brutalized uh, by the Oklahoma defense and and had done nothing. Uh, you know, they had him completely bottled up. He didn't get anything on the ground or, you know, through the air. And it was in the fourth quarter and, well, actually the end of the third quarter. And, uh, 
the North Carolina coaching staff at that point, you know, threw in the towel and uh, put Darian Duran in. To this day, I will always believe that Gary Tranquil had no idea that when he put Darian Durant in that game, first game of the year at Oklahoma, he was creating a quarterback controversy where none had existed. Uh, nobody had thought that uh, Darian Durant was going to compete with senior Ron Curry one of the most highly touted quarterbacks ever brought to North Carolina. Now he had had the Achilles heel injury in his career and, uh, probably that, that derailed what might've been uh, a special career in football for Ron Curry. Um, though he did go on and become a very good wide receiver for the Raiders. Um, but my opinion Durant came in that game and they were just expecting to just kind of, you know, get to the end of the game, spare Ron Curry and, you know, get to the next game. And, and Darren Durant came in and he moved the ball when Ron Curry could not against Oklahoma. Now, maybe Oklahoma took their, you know, the foot off the pedal there a little bit, but he, he did some things that, and for the rest of the year, uh, the difference between Darian Durant and Ron Curry, if there was one, my opinion favored Durant uh, for the rest of that uh, his freshman year. So, and he had a reputation of being a so-so player in practice. You know, he was okay. You know, he probably di- didn't give a hundred percent when he was in practice, but on the field, he was a different player. And and there are players like. There are, there are players like that, players that, um, you know, are practice players and players that, you know, when the lights come on, they're ready to go. A couple of the four-legged Sanders family members making an appearance. <laughs> Greg, when you look at this quarterback competition, the thing you mentioned, and it's something that I did not think uh, that Larry Fedora – finagled very well last year as you mentioned the four games I I think that's why uh, we will see whether Sam Howell is a starter or not I think we see Sam Howell heavy in the first four games of the season uh, to see what he's got in live action because you never know you you never know until somebody's out there Um, and even Fortin and Reuter to you know a certain extent we saw they did well in their very limited time out there Fortin a little bit longer than Reuter, but you know, I think that is something that Mac Brown can really use to his favor and use to the team's favor, at least early in the season. Do you think? Yeah. And I think the fact that Mac has already said they have no plans to register anybody. Um, and granted that's part of that's mindset, right? You, if you tell a guy that he's probably going to redshirt, then maybe he doesn't try as hard. And so th- this allows you to be like, look, you, you, you're probably going to play. In fact, you can play four games and still keep your red shirt. And so I, I, I agree that Sam Howell will at least play in four games. I'm not sure that I agree that's going to be early unless he's right there in the mix. You know, if Fortin or Reuter take this race and run away with it, uh, then, you know, Howell will, will get some playing time and might be against Mercer late in the year. Um, 
just to kind of get some experience. But we'll have to see how all that kind of plays out. But um, for sure, it's going to be it's going to be an interesting dynamic. And we don't really know what Longo values more than anything. Um, you know, Seth Luttrell, when he was here, he always talked about accuracy was most important. And so I think most any coordinator would say that. But then you've also got the leadership aspect. Um, there's a lot of different things that kind of go into it. It's easy to, to look at practice highlights and say, man, these kids have big arms because we really haven't seen that in recent years. Uh, but that's only part of the equation. I mean, it's really the with the way this offense is designed, and, and Buck and I were talking about this during practice, this is not your your typical offense where guys just run basic routes. You know, even with Fedora's offense, you know, if Ryan Switzer was running a route and he was against the zone, well, he would sit down in the zone. If it was against man, he'd keep running. So there's always been that uh, you know, variable there. But with what Longo does, when he talks about running to open grass, he means run to open grass. And that's what a lot of these wide receivers will do. They'll have kind of a kind of a guideline for what route they're looking for, uh, but they're trying to get open more than anything. And so you know, maybe some of their stutter steps, maybe some of their little moves are, are non-traditional in terms of what we're accustomed to. And so uh, those those aspects, how how good of chemistry does a quarterback have with Daz Newsom and Toe Groves? You know, that's important. Um, timing. All those things are, are critically important. Decision-making. Uh, so there's a lot of different things that kind of go into this. And that, again, that's that's why the scrimmages, those live-action situations are so important in this process. Yeah, I feel like we'll see some, at least early in the season, you'll see maybe some interceptions where receivers not anywhere near it um, because they're not on the same page. That, that'll be something to see how the coaching staff manages that because – uh, you mentioned that chemistry, and I think chemistry, you got three guys that are um, pretty similarly skilled. Uh, I think Reuter's probably the best runner of the bunch, could be wrong, but I, I think just what we've seen. But then you've got you've got to have the chemistry with the receivers, like you said, with Longo's philosophy about uh, route running, and that those things are going to matter. I, I, I just think it'll be fascinating to watch. I've got an idea who I think starts. I'm not saying it. Um, but I'll tell you guys off the air, and, and I'll tell you why. But at any rate, let, let's move on down or like maybe back in the backfield. This is a guy that really could make whoever's at quarterback's life much easier, Buck, and that's Javante Williams. You know, Carolina's running back situation, it, it's just amazing to me how it cycles through different positions. Carolina's, if not stacked at running back this year, they are uh, loaded. And Javante might be the one that stands out the most. He's certainly getting his fair share of accolades early in the preseason. Yeah, uh, that's true. And, you know, I I was thinking about this earlier, actually, today. And uh, it's been a while, I think, um, where North Carolina has had a back like Javante Williams. And and by that, I meant mean in terms of uh body type you know they they've had you know the the michael carter guy uh and still have him he's like five nine 195 he, he's not like a um you know a twig or anything back there 
but he's not a big bruising back. He's more of the, um, you know, just a typical kind of, uh, smaller scat back, um, kind of guy, uh, similar to when they had TJ Logan, um, sort of similar in a lot of ways, uh, that kind of back, uh, Logan was a little bit taller and maybe a little bit lighter, but still that same type of back. And then they had Elijah hood. And we're only talking about the last three, four years who was really a much bigger back. He was six foot and two twenty. but, um, Javante is different in that he is built low to the ground. Uh, he's five eleven, and he's like two twenty now, uh, two fifteen, two twenty. He he's kind of the back that I grew up watching in the NFL. That size and uh, body composition that you typically look for in a running back. Um, and he's a smart kid. He gets, uh, pass protections. Uh, he gets, you know, the, the things that he needs to do, the small, uh, details and so on and so forth that, um, you know, you want from a, a running back and, you know, he, he's just, uh, an all around really good running back. That's somebody that can play three downs. Um, you know, maybe on Mike, Michael Carter, you want him on, you know, third down, you maybe want Antonio Williams on first and second down, but if you had to, you could play Javante all three downs. So I think he's a little bit different in a way than, uh, what North Carolina has had at running back for, you know, for a while now. And, uh, if he stays healthy and continues to progress, I think he'll be a very good, uh, big asset to the team this year. Greg running behind an offensive line. that I think Charlie heck will certainly lead. I think Carolina can have some success and that makes it much easier for whoever the quarterback is, but is Williams, the guy that we'll be talking about most of the season. I've always kind of liked Michael Carter and, and what he brings. But like Buck says, there's some guys that are just different. Uh, your thoughts on that position specifically, specifically that Carter-Williams dynamic, um, you know, that we may could see probably if they stay healthy all through the season. Well, I think kind of a key ingredient is the way Longo is going to run this offense is that he's going to use his running backs more as wide receivers than we've seen. And one thing that Javante told me, I guess, last weekend, was that they already had one and two back sets in, but Longo had, had mentioned you know, adding a, a three back set just because those three guys are so unique and so talented. And even in watching them in practice, uh, I mean, they're, they're running a, a lot of routes kind of down the field. And so I think when you talk about a guy like Michael Carter, he can provide that for you. I mean, he, he can, he can, you know, split out wide and can do a lot of different things just because he is so, so quick. Um, Mac has mentioned, you know, maybe some, some durability concerns with, with Carter about kind of his size. And so that when you talk about a power run offense, um, I do think you kind of get into like a third down back situation with Carter, unless you want to go with one of those, you know, two back set or whatever it may be 
which by default kind of moves you to the the Williams twins, if you will, uh, for for being kind of your your every down back. And with Javante being you know, such an you know, intelligent kid, and granted, I mean Antonio is too, uh, but the way that he's kind of picked up on things, and he just has a he has a burst uh, that I've seen. I'm not sure that Antonio has. Uh, and, and so I, I think that's going to put him in a position to, to get a lot of snaps. But the the speed that Longo wants to play at, and that's one thing that we've heard over and over again, is that Longo, he goes. I mean, Fedora moved the ball, and he liked fast tempo, but not like Longo. I mean, this is new to all these kids, how fast Longo's wanting to go. And so you're talking about you know, an increase in, in snaps. And granted, Fedora's offense really the last two years due to a lot of different reasons, uh, but didn't run as many snaps as they did in you know 15 and 16, even 14. Um, but this is this is going to be an offense more than likely is going to be pushing 80 snaps a game. And so that's why Mac has said, it's nice to have three guys that are really good, but guess what? We're going to need British Brooks. We're going to need Josh Henderson to be effective because you know, there's going to be times when maybe three guys aren't enough. We actually need... You know, a fourth guy that can come in and provide some some meaningful reps. So all these guys are going to play a ton, but I think Antonio and Javante are probably going to be the, the two uh, horses, if you will, and the Michael Carter is going to be uh, utilized with his speed and his quickness to do maybe some different things than we've seen him do in the past. It's a good problem to have. Three guys that can play, plus, like you mentioned, Brooks and, and – on down the line, Carolina's got bodies there. Has body have they have bodies that are uh, good and, and can be successful on the college level? Let's take a short break. Come back, talk about the other side of the ball. I think that's the that's the area that if Carolina's going to win six plus games, has to really pick it up. But let's take this break. We'll be right back. We're back with the Inside Carolina podcast. I'm your host Tommy Ashley. Greg Barnes and Buck Sanders joining me. Buck, I think one of the more feel-good stories maybe, and maybe it's just me seeing it from afar, is a guy like Chaz Surratt. Don't know what impact he'll have on the field, but he's certainly having an impact in practice, and he's certainly putting in the work to be successful. And it's at a position that Carolina needs that help. Your thoughts on, I mean, a guy that just got banged on while he was a quarterback at North Carolina. Now he's a linebacker, and everybody seems to – really be pulling for him, Chaz Surratt. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm i curious, you know, everybody that you know follows uh, Inside Carolina and the Tar Pit Premium Message Board, we've talked about Chaz's transition from quarterback to linebacker a lot. Uh, but, you know, I'm curious, how much is he actually going to play? And if he does actually play, what a great story that would be if he's successful at it. Um, apparently, Mac Brown likes you know the, the his speed. Uh, you know, sometimes Mac throws uh, the the words four four and four five around a lot in terms of forty speeds, and I'm not quite sure he's he's being as accurate as he as reality is. But you know he. He talks about how fast Chaz is. Maybe he's a four or five guy, um, and and now he's up to two thirty. He's just got to learn the nuances of the position. 
and he doesn't have long to do it. I mean, this is going to be his last year playing football. Uh, but, you know, from my admiration uh, for Chaz stems from the fact that probably he could have transferred to an FCS program, some place like that, kept playing quarterback, um, you know, and finished his career as a quarterback. Um, but he didn't. He decided he was going to stay at Carolina and change positions. Um, you know, the, the fact, if he had came back as a quarterback to UNC, you know, he'd have never seen the light of day um, in, in 2019. So uh, I, I have a lot of admiration from him and just due to the fact that, you know, he made a very intelligent, in my opinion, decision hey, I'm not, I don't have a career as a quarterback going forward. I want to stay at Carolina, finish with my uh, guys that I came in with, help in any way I can, and I'm going to work hard in the weight room and in the the linebacker room and, and see what I can do to be a real contributor to this team and finish my career here. It'd be a tremendous story if he has, uh, some success, uh, at linebacker. And that's a position where North Carolina could use, uh, some people with experience, even if they don't have experience at that particular position, uh, at least they're, you know, experienced with, you know, the college speed and uh, college talent and against other power five program. So I, for sure, I'm rooting for, for, uh, Shrett. Uh, you know, to be a huge success at linebacker. And, you know, they certainly could use uh, some help at, at linebacker as well as having depth, uh, you know, and, and that's something that Greg and I have talked about uh, several times. Uh, the, the thing that is going to stop this team from being, you know, that, you know, eight or nine, ten win team that a lot of people, a lot of people like to throw those numbers out is they just do not have the proven depth to be able to do that on both sides of the ball. Greg, when I see Chess Rat, I see a guy, um, like I said, he, he got banged around. And, you know, some of it, it's not really fair what college fans do when they're talking about college football players. It's different when they're on the pro level. But the decision to move positions certainly um, – will benefit him if he wants to get on the field. That being said, I'm trying to remember guys that have made such a drastic change. I can think of, well, Carolina's got one uh, in Corey Bell that's now receiver, but from receiver to, from defensive back to receivers, not really that huge a leap. I think Deems May was, you know, certainly a, a big time quarterback coming into Carolina ended up being a professional tight end, but I'm having a hard time remembering too many more players at Carolina specifically that have made such a drastic position change. Sort if of I going ju- from. If I could jump in, Tommy, uh, one of them has a son playing for North Carolina. Uh, Torn Dorn was a running back uh, under Mac and uh, got switched to a. Uh, the secondary, uh, I think, is either his junior or senior year. You are indeed right. And uh, uh, you correct me before I even finish my point. This is spot on. 
But, but Greg, your thoughts there. Um, you know, it's a feel-good story, but it's also a situation where, like Buck said, Carolina needs some bodies and needs some good bodies at linebacker. Yeah, and I think that's that's kind of the, the crux of the issue is that when you when you look at this roster, is there talent? Yes. Is there a ton of talent? No, there's not. And that that's the problem because you know Dom Ross. Let's take him for example. Uh, you know, this is just just my my guess here, but just enlisting to how some of the coaches have talked, how Max talked about him, I think they probably like him at outside linebacker. Because him and Strobridge and, and Fox are probably the three best pass rushers uh, on this defense. But because of the, the issues at middle linebacker, I mean, you've got Ross and you've got Gimmel. And then behind those guys, I mean, you do have Jonathan Smith, but he's going to be suspended for a couple games at least. And then Chas Surratt's right there on the second team. Um, and maybe Surratt is a great story. I hope he is. He's a good kid. Um, but to expect him to make that switch so quickly and be effective from day one, I think it is asking a lot. Um, you know, hopefully he proves me wrong, but kind of to your point, Tommy, you don't see that happen a whole lot. Um, you know, he, he did play a little bit on the defensive side of the ball in, in high school, but in talking with Don Callahan, Don said, you know, basically it would line him up and say, All right, go after the quarterback. And that's pretty much it. And Mac mentioned that last week, you know, and, and some of these, some of these situations when they have to get straight on the field, he may not have the knowledge base right yet to drop back into coverage and, you know, the coverage of a crossing route or a mesh or whatever. And so when they put him in the game, it may just be a go after the quarterback. But as we've seen in the past, if you have a guy that can only do one thing, that makes it a lot easier for the offense to kind of know what you're doing. And so I think that's one of the challenges is you, you, you're going to have to rely on Ross at middle linebacker just because you don't have many other choices. And I think the same kind of goes with, I mean, if you talk about the defensive line, for example, I think moving forward, you're going to want like two Jason Strobridges up there uh, on either side of Aaron Crawford. But right now, Tamon Fox is going to have to be one of those defensive ends probably, whereas you would rather him maybe move outside and be an outside linebacker or defensive end type. Uh, but you only have so many options there. And that's one of the reasons Max talked about. You, we have to develop depth because we know that Crawford's good. We know that Strobridge is good. So at what point in a game do we get to the point where, okay, they've played 60 snaps, they're tired. Is their backup good enough to come in and play 20 snaps fresh as good as those guys may have played those 20 snaps tired? And that's the that's the equation in play. And that's one of the things like on the offensive line. They want Nick Polino at guard. They need him at guard. But yet, because you have uh, inexperience and a kind of a, a lack of bodies at center, you've got Brian Anderson, who's a retro sophomore, hadn't played a whole lot. And you've got Ty Murray, a true freshman. Well, now Polino's having to play some at center still. And the hope is that Anderson and Murray progress enough where you can just keep Polino at guard. Uh, but that's not the case right now. You know, Polino played center most of the day on Monday. Uh, and in the backfield, let's talk about that, the defensive backfield. You've got Trey Morrison because he played nickel in the spring and he understands how to play nickel. They've got him at corner because while you have Patrice Renee at one corner spot, 
who's a really good player. There's a lot of questions about, okay, who can play the other corner spot? And so they've put Trey Morrison there trying just to get bodies. And that's one of the unique things. We've talked about the positionless defense. I mean, this is the great example of what Bateman has to do because DeAndre Hollins, because Morrison now is playing corner, he's having to play nickel. He's having to learn a new position. And so they're letting all these guys learn all these different positions. And by getting one player who maybe is experienced like a Morrison to be able to play two or three different spots, you build depth because you don't have the bodies that you need to be effective. You can't just have, well, this is the first team. This is the second team. We're just going to swap them out after three series. You can't do that. You don't have enough talent there. Um, and so that that's one of the interesting dynamics, especially on the defensive side of the ball. And you know, Mac was even talking about that the other day is you know, if you're, if your best nickel is also the backup corner, how do you handle that? You, you if you've got to if you got to put that backup corner into the nickel spot because maybe that nickel gets hurt that was playing there, well now you're really short on depth, uh, and it's really going to be that type of situation I think all season long, and that's why depth building is such an important key to training camp, trying to get some of these young guys just as many reps as you possibly can. Because unless you can just get through the season without any injuries, uh, those kids are going to have to play a lot, and they're going to be raw, they're going to be inexperienced, and that's just something you've got to deal with. Greg, let me ask you this question now. You you put out a lot of names there. Um, Back seven, let's go linebackers back. Who's who's the leader of this defense? Uh, Usually, you know, most defenses you see, you've got a linebacker that's the leader. It's been that way at Carolina. Uh, for a long, long time, it's been that way on other teams. But who on? And we've talked about the maybe the struggles of Carolina's linebackers potentially. But who is of those back seven of that back seven? Who who stands up to be the leader of this bunch? Well, I think the good thing about this defense is that you do have some quality talent uh, in the junior and senior classes. And I'm I'm a big proponent of you want your leaders to be in the, the middle of the defense. And I think you have that. I mean, you've got Aaron Crawford at nose tackle, uh, possibly the best player on this this defense. Dom Ross, even though I know he has some ups and downs under Fedora, um, I think he's kind of embraced this as a fresh start. And by all accounts, he's he's really kind of taking it and run with it. And the staff has a lot of faith in him. And then you got Miles Dorn back there. Um, and Miles is a guy that uh, he's very heady. You know, granted, his brother had a lot of success at state. We know about his dad, or you mentioned him. Um, but he's just a sharp kid. And then you also have, you know, Patrice Renee at cornerback. So I think at each of these positions, uh, and kind of each level, you've got guys there that can be good leaders. And I think that's going to be critically important because why are you going to have so many moving pieces? You have to have guys that understand what everybody else is supposed to do. It's one thing to know what you're doing. There has to be people there who can say, hey, you're supposed to be doing this in this play. And if you've got three or four guys like that that can do it, that's important. But that gets back to the fact if you've only got like four or five guys in those roles, they're going to have to play a lot. And that really limits uh, what you can do in terms of your know, depth and those types of things. So, Buck, you know, we're, we're talking about who's going to be the leader of the defense. And Greg's right. Down the middle, Carolina's good. Uh, Crawford, you got Dom Ross at linebacker, and then you got Miles Dorn. It's funny to me how we probably on this podcast more than once knocked on Cole Holcomb 
at times, but it is pretty clear, at least I think it's clear, that he was the leader of Carolina's defense, and, and he's shown how maybe how good he actually was now that he's in the NFL with the Redskins and getting some praise from his coaches and, and whatnot. But your thoughts on who maybe is the leader of this Carolina defense. I asked Greg about who it was on the back seven, but can a leader, like the leader, if you've got one guy you had to pick as being the leader, can it be somebody not in a linebacker role? And who do you think it'll be? Well, uh, that's a good question, Tommy. I, I'm not really sure. Typically, you uh, want that guy that is uh, a linebacker kind of guy. Um, and and a lot of times you want it to be the middle linebacker because back in the day, the middle linebacker was sort of the quarterback of the, of the defense. With Jay Bateman... You don't have that guy. I mean, uh, you don't have a middle linebacker who is the quarterback of the defense that is going to play every down and is the guy that sets the entire defense and everybody's looking to you know, the middle linebacker to set the defense. Uh, you know, you don't have that guy not in Bateman's defense. I mean, uh there's so many moving pieces and parts. Uh, they, he talks about it being a positionless defense. I think it's possible, it's conceivable for any member, really, of the defense to establish himself as a leader. You got a guy like Patrice Rene, who is a cornerback, who has really been through the wars, if you think about it. If you think about uh, – him, you know, four years ago, uh, going out as a true freshman and playing against Georgia, um, and, and everything that's happened since then. And by all accounts, you know, Patrice Renee is, uh, even last year, if you look at some of, uh, uh, pro football focuses information about, uh, defensive backs in the ACC, Patrice Renee is, you know, one of the top guys in, in the ACC. So I don't know that it has to be uh, a leader on defense. I don't think it has to come from a particular position. I think it can be anybody um, on the defense. And, um, you know, Greg makes a great point. You know, you've got Crawford, you've got Ross. Uh, you've got, uh, Dorn, even miles Wolford, um, you know, you've got some guys on that team in the junior and senior classes that have been around for a while. And I don't know that you have to have one guy in this defense that everybody is going to look to and, uh, you know, like a Kevin Reddick or even a Mark Pascal. Uh, to be the leader of the defense. I think that leadership can come at any position. And I think with a, a new staff and a new coordinator, uh, it's open for somebody to take it. And I, I, it'll be interesting for me to watch, see who picks it up and who takes it. Because I do think you need uh, maybe not a position, uh, but you do need a guy. You know, You need one of those guys, a player, not just a guy, a player to be the leader. Greg, what have we missed? Now, they're a couple weeks into practice. Uh, South Carolina's still 
well, it's not still, it's a couple weeks away. Um, what are you still looking for to see um, and to learn about from this Carolina's preseason or, or working their way through preseason camp that maybe folks aren't thinking about or aren't talking about? Well, I think the fact that we have a unique situation with, with Jay Bateman running a, a defense is going to be very unique. Although Miles Dorn said football is football. Um, you can only do so many different things on the field. I think that is true, but it should still be interesting to kind of break down what Bateman does. And then, of course, we have the air raid along with a, a power running game. Uh, so everybody's been focused on that, which would clearly is critical. Um, but I think there's there's a lot of concern with special teams, uh, particularly with with place kicking and, and punting. Um, you know, we've heard Lonnie Galloway uh, yell quite a few times um, at some of the putting situations as he's working with the punt returners about uh, punts maybe being twenty yards short or punters not catching hikes and some things like that. Um, you know, and you've got you know Ruggles and a Mike Rubino really battling there at place kicker, Jonathan Kim's in there as well. Uh, but I, I think those are critical areas for uh, North Carolina to be effective because when we look at the schedule, I know we've already talked about it, but I think a lot of people kind of give Clemson a pretty, a, a pretty good head start in terms of winning the game against Carolina. And then the same goes for Carolina against Mercer. But those other 10 games, um, while maybe not all toss-ups, they're pretty close. And if we're talking about games that are maybe 50-50 or 60-40 type games, special teams are huge. I mean, we're talking about last second kicks. We're talking about punts that matter, winning the, the hidden yardage battle. Uh, and so I think that is a development that really has to come along. And we're going to have to see a lot of improvement in those areas. That was a concern for North Carolina in the spring. Uh, haven't really heard rave reviews early in camp. And so I think that's something for people to kind of keep an eye on because that could be a, a critical component for, for North Carolina's ability to, to get to a bowl game this year. Hey, uh, how many times have we seen a team uh, crap the bed on a special team's play and lose by less than a touchdown or lose by less than a field goal? It, it, it's happened a ton. Bobby Bowden can certainly talk about that a lot down in Florida State. Shout out to Jason Staples on that one. Buck, close the show. Tell me what you uh, – would like to see come about for this team before they get to South Carolina and Charlotte. Uh, wh what do you want to see uh, develop as far as uh, improve on, uh, come to light, anything, anywhere you want to go to close this one? Well, uh, in, there's like a dozen different things I would want to see uh, headed into the season, but uh, one thing we have has sort of been a recurring theme during spring and summer, uh, and even into fall camp, is uh, I don't think the uh, staff is completely pleased with the number of drops that they've had from the wide receivers, and it you know it doesn't matter how great your quarterback's arm is if the receivers can't catch it. And I, I think that's a concern. Um, and in some ways, uh, and you and I talked about this in the stands last year, uh, when, uh, you know, Cade Fortin came in, uh, for the first time and, uh, Nathan Elliott left the field, 
I, I don't think the wide receivers were used to uh, getting a ball uh, at the velocity that, that Fortin was throwing it uh, as compared to Elliott and, and were surprised uh, a number of times um, by, you know, the, the, the way the ball arrived uh, to where they were and, and were cert- sometimes taken aback uh, by the fact that, uh, you know, they're 20 yards downfield and the ball got there in a, uh, in a hurry. And, you know, this receiving core, uh, all of them really, um, have, uh, developed, um, as receivers where they had, uh, Chas Rat, Nathan Elliott, and, uh, Brandon Harris, uh, as, uh, you know, quarterback throwing them the ball and, uh, it's different now. Uh, now I, I'm not saying that, that Sam Howell is the guy that's going to start. I, I think he'll play some this year. I'm not sure he's a starter, but, uh, it would take a blind man not to see, uh, the difference in velocity, um, that Sam Howell throws the ball and compared to Nathan Elliott and you're actually playing a different game a little bit. If, uh, Sam Howell's throwing you the ball as compared to Nathan Elliott as a receiver, you're playing a different game in a way. Um, so I, you know, I think that's something they've got to get used to. Uh, I think, you know, the more reps they can get, the more acclimated they can get, uh, the better it is. And in some ways, I think that puts a little bit more pressure on Mac Brown to kind of settle in on who's going to be his guy, uh, you know, in, in the South Carolina game and, and the guy he thinks is going to be the quarterback moving forward because getting that chemistry between whoever's going to start quarterback and the receivers, which are developing a little bit of a, uh, a theme of we're not catching the ball like we should, I, I think it's going to be important to, to get those people on the same page as quickly as they can, um, you know, during fall camp. It's going to be interesting to watch. I think, like you mentioned, Greg mentioned earlier as well, chemistry between quarterbacks and receivers, especially given Longo's uh, style or, or, the approach they take in running routes. I think it's even bigger than it's ever been, especially for a North Carolina team who, like you said, Buck, has struggled getting the ball where it needs to be for the last couple of years on the offensive side. It's always a pleasure, gentlemen. Carolina, South Carolina is, uh, was it three weeks? Three weeks from today or three weeks from Saturday? Hard to believe we're getting closer to that. Hard to believe that Carolina football season is about to begin. A lot of good stuff coming up for Inside Carolina covering Carolina football. A lot of good stuff um, once the Tar Heels get to Chapel Hill, play some games in Keenan Stadium. But, Greg, it's always a pleasure. Thank you guys for joining me. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for listening to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com. Brought to you by T-Shirt.com. Where to go for your next Tar Heel gear purchase.